science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, let's get started right away with my questions. First, what is preen oil? P-R-E-E-N. That's our first question for today. And the second one is all about Pierre and Marie Curie. Uh, they, of course, were best known for investigating radioactivity, but they also investigated phenomena produced by an Italian woman who had no education. What phenomena did they investigate? If you know the answer to those questions, you call us at 514-790-0800. That's also the number to call with any question that you might have. And uh, 514-800 is where you can text your queries and answers. You know, October for most people means fall, means Halloween. For me, there's uh, something else about October. And that is the Trottier Public Science Symposium that uh, my office organizes every year. We started this venture 11 years ago uh, when our first guest was the amazing Randy. And since that time, we have had all kinds of other speakers and uh, we have uh, looked at a large variety of topics. The uh, symposium has been live with uh, over a thousand people attending at the Centre Mont-Royal. Unfortunately, because of COVID last year, we had to resort to going online and it worked very well. We had lots of people attending. And this year we're also forced to stream, that is to do it all online. Hopefully next year we go back to a live audience. It all takes place tomorrow night and Tuesday night at 7 p.m. And this year, the theme that we have selected is the science of life and death. And of course, we have given a lot of attention to death in the past uh, year, year and a half, because of all the people, unfortunately, who have succumbed to COVID-19. So we are going to examine various aspects of life and death. We're going to kick it off with Dr. Paul Offit tomorrow night at seven o'clock. And uh, I'm sure you know Paul from his many appearances on CNN. He is uh, one of North America's leading experts on, on uh, vaccination. He is a co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. He's an advisor to FDA, to CDC, and he's going to talk to us about living with COVID-19. And then we will have a very interesting guest, Kari Northey, who's a mortician. Now, this is a subject that most people don't uh, think about very much, don't like to think about very much, but there's a lot of science involved in what happens after we have left this world. And she's going to tell us about all of the issues that arise in a mortuary. Maybe sometimes even the corpses arise. There's some interesting stories there. So that will be tomorrow night at seven. On Tuesday night at seven, uh, we will hear about how to keep our brain active and alive from Dr. Leslie Fellows, who's a neurologist here at McGill. 
And uh, I will finish it off on Tuesday night with uh, trying to answer the question, can we talk to the dead? I will investigate the history of spiritualism and uh, psychic phenomena, and we'll see what we know about the possibility of life after death. I hope that you can join us both evenings because it promises to be fascinating and informative. The question, of course, is how do you do it? If you go to our website, all the information is there, and that is mcgill.ca slash OSS. We will be streaming live on YouTube, and that's also quite easy to remember. The link is youtube.com slash mcgilloss. But again, the instructions are all there on our website. If you want any further information, of course, you can always email me. And uh, my email is joejoe.schwarcz at mcgill.ca. And uh, I can pretty well guarantee you that it's going to be a fun and informative uh, two evenings. And... Uh, in a sense, it is easier to join us, to look for parking. You don't have to worry about coming downtown. Uh, all you have to do is uh, join us on our streaming network. So that's youtube.com slash mcgilloss, 7 o'clock tomorrow night and on Tuesday night. For those of you who uh, don't know, my background is in chemistry. And I hold chemistry to be the central science. It is the one that links the other sciences together. Because if you have a feeling for what molecules are and how atoms can join together to form them and the kind of reactions in which they can engage, then I think you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen uh, in the world. So what can and cannot happen in the world? There, of course, are all kinds of interesting things that are... Uh, happening out there, uh, some serious, some silly, such as uh, uh, sort of frivolous lawsuits. And uh, there is one that has uh, uh, been publicized in the last couple of days. It is a lawsuit that has been launched against uh, the Kellogg's company because supposedly they are advertising one of their products, which is their Pop-Tarts, in a fashion uh, that did not seem to be suitable to the plaintiff. A lady by the name of Anita Harris filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court, Southern District of Illinois, uh, alleging that the frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts are being sold in a misleading fashion because, quote, they give consumers the impression the fruit filling contains a greater relative and absolute amount of strawberries than it does. And she says that she was kind of taken in by this advertising and had she understood that the strawberry content of, of these Pop-Tarts was less than 2%, and in fact, much less than that because uh, uh, the contains 2% or less, includes wheat starch, salt, dried pears, and dried apples, along with uh, strawberries. So she feels that she was uh, uh, basically misrepresented uh, misled uh, by this. Uh, and she's hoping to gain a large settlement because she sued for $5 million for being misled by Pop-Tart advertising. Uh, I think this is a frivolous lawsuit. Uh, it's um, 
basically only to the benefit of, of lawyers who are trying to squeeze the company. This does not mean that Pop-Tarts are a healthy, nutritious food. Of course they are not. But who on earth would think that? Who would think that this thing that you pop into your, your toaster uh, is going to have a significant amount of strawberries uh, in there? So uh, although, of course, I agree with the fact that, that Pop-Tarts are not uh, something to be recommended as regular part of a diet, I don't think that it's deserving of a $5 million lawsuit uh, for uh, supposedly uh, misleading people about the strawberry content. I mean, of course, uh, in order to understand that um, this is not a nutritious food, all you have to do is look at the ingredients. And of course, you see that the first ingredient is, is flour followed by corn syrup, then high fructose corn syrup, then dextrose, soybean and palm oil, etc. So they, these are not uh, great ingredients. And you have to go way, way down the list uh, where the label says contains 2% or less wheat starch, salt, dried strawberries, dried pears, dried apples, leavening, uh, gelatin, modified wheat starch, yellow corn flour, caramel color, palm oil, xanthan gum, cornstarch, turmeric extract, soy lecithin, red number 40, yellow six, blue number one, uh, etc. And of course, when you take a look at the calories, you get, there's 200 calories. Uh, there are five grams of fat, 38 grams of carbs. So obviously this is not, uh, you know, <laughs> nutritionally great food. It is uh, something that one might occasionally enjoy, although I don't quite know why, uh, perhaps for nostalgic reasons. But I think uh, alleging that the Kellogg company is somehow uh, misleading consumers to the tune that they deserve to be fined $5 million. Uh, I think that's that, that is misplaced uh, a lawsuit. Uh, if there's anything that they should be fined for, it is for selling something that is so nutritionally poor, uh, not for uh, suggesting that it contains more strawberries than it does. All right, anyway, that's... Uh, uh, enough about the Kellogg's uh, Pop-Tarts. And uh, so let me just repeat the questions that I, I posed. What is prenoil? And also uh, the team of Pierre and Marie Curie, of course, are best known for investigating radioactivity, but they also investigated phenomena produced by an Italian woman who had no education. Okay. If you know the answers, you call us at 514-790-0800. You can also text your answers and questions and we'll be right back after we check to see what is going on with traffic. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I had a text question, very appropriate for this time of year, about raking leaves, whether you should leave them on the lawn or, or uh, take them away. And uh, as, as you might expect, there's a, a fantastic amount of uh, information, opinion of, of this when you start uh, searching on, on Google. And uh, there, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that when you gather these leaves and put them into plastic bags, uh, those plastic bags full of leaves often end up in landfills. 
and uh, the uh, stuff doesn't degrade in, in the landfill. So it's much better to not do that. Uh, so what do you do? Well, it's not a great idea to leave the leaves on the grass uh, as they are. Uh, there is uh, a fair bit of advice about uh, leaving them for a while until they're dry and then running the lawnmower over them until that, that will sort of grind them up. And then they become fertilizer and also a great uh, venue for earthworms into which they can emerge and and uh, butterflies lay their larvae in there, etc. That seems to be a, a widespread uh, opinion. If you're going to rake them, uh, then the suggestion is that you rake them off of your lawn onto your, if you have a vegetable patch or flower patch, onto there, because there they will act as, uh, as fertilizer. But again, it's interesting that there are all kinds of opinions uh, about this, uh, but uh, I, I think that there's, you know, some concern about uh, just putting them into plastic bags and having those go into the landfill because they'll occupy quite some space and they will not uh, degrade. Someone also wanted to know about uh, a tablespoon of ground flaxseed on testosterone levels in, in men. Uh, the one tablespoon on, of uh, ground flaxseed is not going to wreak havoc with your testosterone levels. And uh, in fact, the, the uh, uh, alpha linoleic acid, the omega-3 fat content of, of, of uh, flaxseed is something that is, uh, is beneficial. So there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, consuming that. Uh, okay, uh, someone else wants to know uh, how they can sign up for tomorrow's uh, event. Uh, it's very simple. As I said, you just go to our website which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. And everything you want to know is, is right there. So please uh, just uh, check it out. Uh, leaves are good for hedges, someone says. That, of course, is uh, also true. So there's just a, a great deal of information there uh, about uh, what to do with those leaves. Okay, uh, again, uh, no answers yet to my question, I'm surprised. Uh, what is preen oil? And uh, Pierre and Marie Curie are best known for investigating radioactivity, but they also investigated phenomena produced by an Italian woman who had no education. All right, let me now get down to talking a little bit about monosodium glutamate or MSG, because there is so much information about this and uh, much of it is, is just incorrect. A lot of people uh, gave up... Uh, uh, MSG uh, in their food when um, a, a paper was published in Young, the Journal of Medicine uh, by uh, an American uh, uh, doctor of, of Asian descent who coined the term Chinese restaurant syndrome uh, when he found that uh, he had some uh, symptoms after eating in a Chinese restaurant that he attributed to uh, monosodium uh, glutamate. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, no MSG signs appeared in windows of Chinese restaurants, uh, referring to the elimination of this popular flavor enhancer. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, MSG was kind of painted like a, like a villain, like a poison that was being put into the food supply. Most people assume that MSG is one of those questionable substances unleashed upon the public by modern chemical technology. But that is not the case. Glutamic acid and its derivatives are widespread in nature. 
even the human body contains glutamate, which serves as a neurotransmitter or chemical communicator used by sensory nerves entering the central nervous system. Oriental cooks have long flavored foods with seaweed and uh, soy sauce as well, but it was only in 1908 that a Japanese researcher discovered the secret behind this effect, monosodium glutamate, the salt of a commonly occurring amino acid. While today MSG is produced on a massive scale by a fermentation process in which beet sugar or corn syrup is converted to glutamic acid. But glutamic acid also occurs widely naturally in foods. The ability of mushrooms and tomatoes to intensify the flavor of certain dishes is due to their high content of free glutamic acid. Parmesan and camembert cheeses also owe their characteristic taste in part to glutamate. Obviously then, glutamic acid is prevalent in foods that we eat on a daily basis. Indeed, calculations show that the intake of natural occurring glutamic acid from foods is far greater than from the MSG used as an additive. So why all the concern? Again, it goes back to 1968 when uh, Dr. Ho Man Kwok noted a tightness in his chest and jaw headache and burning sensation in the back of his neck a short time after eating a meal in a Chinese restaurant. And in a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, he coined the term Chinese restaurant syndrome for these symptoms. Of course, uh, that began controversy uh, because this was, you know, one anecdotal case. Uh, but the symptoms, uh, you know, are sometimes reported by other people as well. Uh, whether or not this is due to the so-called nocebo effect because uh, they're you know worry about uh, about msg or whether some people have true reactions that is it's controversial uh, but uh, certainly ingredients in food can provoke uh, reactions in in people uh, food intolerances but it, it's uh, not a widespread thing with monosodium uh, glutamate so uh, i think the the simplest thing to say about MSG as an additive is that it is often added to foods which are sort of a questionable nutritional value anyway. And uh, probably, you know, that's a better reason to skip those, those foods. But MSG by itself is not the villain that uh, it has been made out to be. Uh, it is possible that some people, in rare cases, can have a sensitivity because you can have a sensitivity to all kinds of uh, food ingredients. Also, the allegation that uh, uh, that uh, uh, headaches are due to MSG, that has not been corroborated by studies. And the regulatory agencies already in Australia and New Zealand that previously stated uh, that there was a sensitivity uh, uh, for headaches and now have removed those warnings because there just isn't any evidence for that. So I, I don't think that there is this need to worry about uh, uh, MSG. And uh, surveys show that there is actually, I think, more of an emotional reaction to this substance than a fact-based reaction. Why do we say that? Because in a very interesting survey of 800 adults, uh, about MSG and their attitudes. Researchers found that the MSG avoiders were far less knowledgeable about uh, the science of MSG 
than people who did not have such concern about uh, MSG. However, interestingly enough, the MSG avoiders were more confident about their knowledge about science, even though on surveys they showed that they did not have very much knowledge about um, MSG. They were avoiding it because of what they had read on the internet. They had been reading all of these alarmist uh, things. So I, I think uh, monosodium glutamate has, has been portrayed as some evil substance, whereas we really do not have any evidence that it plays that role. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check the CTV news and we'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Got a couple of comments about MSG. Someone saying that they get sweaty on the forehead when they consume MSG. Uh, yes, that, that can happen. That's one of these food intolerances. It's not an allergic reaction. It's not uh, antibody mediated. It can happen. And if that bothers you, well, then you stay away from MSG. Someone else says that Chinese restaurant syndrome uh, occurs when you feel full, but you're hungry an hour later. I I think they're saying that as a joke because Chinese restaurant syndrome was originally a term coined for MSG uh, reaction. Um, I still don't have a question, an answer to the questions I asked, uh, although maybe David can contribute. David. Sorry, I was just on hold for something else. I apologize. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. I was on hold for this morning upon the trivia show. I don't know why they put me on here. I apologize. Oh, okay. You've been holding since this morning? <laughs> no, no, no. I called <laughs> in. <laughs> okay. All right. So I still have those questions, and uh, it seems that they are uh, creating more difficulty than I would have thought. So let me give you another question that maybe is somewhat uh, somewhat. Uh, easier uh, if you find that one uh, a bit too difficult. About how many teaspoons of sugar are there in a 350 milliliter can of uh, Coca-Cola? That's 12 ounces. So about how many teaspoons of sugar are there in a 350 milliliter or a 12 ounce can of Coke? 514-790-0800 or 514-800. In the meantime, let me uh, talk a little bit about Louis Pasteur. His interests range from the chemistry of fermentation to a treatment for rabies, from the three-dimensional structure of molecules to communicable diseases. His curiosity about diseases was aroused in 1862 when he was called upon by the French silk industry to save it from a potentially catastrophic epidemic among silkworms. Although he had never worked with silkworms before, he managed to trace the problem to a tiny parasite which infected the worms and the mulberry leaves upon which they fed. Upon Pasteur's recommendation, the worms and their food supply were destroyed. A fresh start with new healthy worms led to a flourishing French silk industry. Through a peculiar sequence of events, the scientific rescue of the silk industry also led to the development of the first real commercial competitor for silk, and that was rayon. 
Count Hilaire de Chardonnay was an assistant to Pasteur during the silkworm saga. He became fascinated with the way silkworms spun silk and thought that by understanding what the worm did, man should also be able to make the desired fiber. He never was able to duplicate silk, but did manage to produce the first commercial artificial silk, and was all because of a lucky accident. Back in those days, a substance called collodion was commonly used to coat and protect photographic plates. This material was first made in 1846 by Louis Menard, who treated cotton with a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acids and then dissolved the resulting gun cotton in ether and alcohol. Gun cotton was an appropriate term for the nitrated cellulose because it was highly flammable. When the solvent evaporated from collodion, the transparent gelatinous liquid dried to a hard colorless film, which was also popular as a dressing for cuts and burns. One day, when Chardonnay was working with his photographic plates, he accidentally spilled a bottle of collodion. He left the spill for a while, and when he began to clean it up with a cloth, he noted that long silk-like filaments formed. His work with silkworms had, of course, prepared his mind for the discovery. Independently wealthy, he spent the next six years working on his invention. Chardonnay used the cellulose in mulberry leaves to make nitrocellulose solution that he squeezed through a showerhead-like device to produce thin filaments that could be spun into fabric. This amazing Chardonnay silk was introduced at the Paris exhibition in 1889 and its beautiful lustrous glow and silky texture immediately captured the public's attention. Financial backing was quickly found, and by 1891, commercial production was underway. The name chosen for the new fabric woven out of silky threads was rayon, because it seemed that the sun's rays frolicked on its surface. The first rayons were highly flammable, and factory workers who produced it began to refer to the newfangled material by a less endearing name. They called it mother-in-law silk. Some of you will understand that expression. This original rayon is no longer manufactured. Its flammability would be unacceptable today. The name rayon, however, survives. Today's rayon fibers are made by treating purified cellulose, mostly from wood pulp, with carbon disulfide to form a cellulose derivative known as xanthate that is then treated with sodium hydroxide to regenerate the cellulose in a solution that is then pushed through a spinneret, very much like Chardonnay's. But of course, it's not flammable and thus can no longer be referred to as mother-in-law silk. So there is an interesting little story for you. And it just, uh, it goes to show that uh, uh, sometimes accidental discoveries have a great impact on science. All right, I think Peter has an answer to one of my questions. Go ahead, Peter. Hey, uh, great story about the rayon. That was really interesting. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and guess that there's 30 teaspoons and an average can of Coca-Cola. 30 teaspoons? Yeah. No, that's a lot. The 30 teaspoons is a lot. There's not quite that much. There is oh, okay. an impressive amount, but it's, it's not 30. Yeah. How, how did you come to that? 
Actually, I had a much more conservative estimate, but I just realized how obese people are that drink Coca, Coca-Cola. And then I realized that, uh, you know what, they use a lot of corn syrup. They used to use sugar cane, now they use corn syrup. That's, that's dense in carbohydrates, so maybe it would yes. be around that number. Yeah, uh, well, you're, you're, you're off. <laughs> but, but you're <laughs> right about the fact that it does contain a lot of, a lot of carbs. All right, yeah, let's yeah. see if someone else comes up with a, an answer that is closer to the fact about the teaspoons, number of teaspoons of sugar in a 350 mil uh, can of Coke. And that is all that translates to 12 ounces of, of Coke. And then, of course, still the question about Pierre and Marie Curie. We know that they were in investigating radioactivity, but I think uh, you'll be surprised to find out that they also had a very serious interest in phenomena produced by an Italian woman. And that woman had no scientific education, so it had nothing to do with radioactivity. Go ahead and Google, see if you can find the answer to, to that one. And I would have thought that it would not be so challenging to find an answer to the question about what is preen oil? What is preen oil? All right, another question that was texted in, when large manufacturers of soft drinks and beer filter their city water before using it to make their product, is the fluoride in the water removed? No, the, uh, the, those uh, filtration systems usually uh, are based on activated carbon, that is, is charcoal, and that will not remove the fluoride. The fluoride content of soft drinks uh, can vary quite significantly uh, because uh, it depends on how much natural fluoride there is in the water and, and whether or not fluoride has been added by municipal authorities. Uh, because, uh, as you can imagine, the manufacturers of, uh, of soft drinks uh, take their water uh, locally, close to the manufacturing plant. And Coca-Cola has manufacturing plants all over the world, and they use locally sourced water. And that may have uh, fluoride in it or not. It may be have fluoride as an additive or or not. But these companies do not go to uh, the extent of taking any measure to remove the fluoride. And of course, why should they? Uh, fluoride content of, of water reduces uh, cavities and it does not pose the risk that the anti-fluoride activists uh, say, uh, unless the fluoride content is extremely high when you can get something called fluorosis, which is a, a yellowish discoloration of the teeth. But that occurs in areas where the water is fluoride, high in fluoride naturally, as occurs in some areas in North America. So no, the soft drink companies do not try to remove fluoride from water. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Very interesting text question. How did they discover that fluoride prevents cavities? I guess that was provoked with uh, what I was just talking about uh, with fluoride. Well, yeah, very good question. Takes us back to 1901. And uh, a dentist by the name of Frederick McKay, who opened a dental practice in Colorado Springs. And uh, he noticed something interesting, that many of his patients had stained or mottled teeth Today, we call this fluorosis. But he was surprised to find that people who had these unsightly teeth also had very few cavities. 
and the link turned out to be the high level of fluoride in Colorado Springs drinking water naturally occurring. And Mackay's observation then spurred comparisons of the dental health of communities with different amounts of fluoride in the water. And when the natural fluoride concentration was greater than one part per million, the incidence of cavities was seen to be reduced by some 50 to 65%. Uh, this was time then to initiate some trials to see whether or not addition of fluoride to water would have a benefit. And in 1945, Grand Rapids, Michigan became the first city in the world to adjust its drinking water to fluoride concentration at one part per million. Brantford, Ontario followed the same year. And uh, of course, uh, pretty soon they found that uh, adding fluoride to the drinking water reduced the incidence of, of cavities. These days, uh, they focused in more on the exact amount, and it seems that 0 0.07 ppm works as well, and that's the uh, usual level of fluoridation now. So fluoride does prevent cavities, and we learned about this back in 1901 from Frederick McKay, a dentist in Colorado. Okay, I think Anne may have an answer to my question about Coca-Cola. Anne. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Good. Firstly, let me tell you how much I enjoy your program every Sunday. I never miss you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, and I think between five and eight spoons. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a scientist or a chemist, but it's so sweet. It's very sweet. Well, you're getting closer to to than our last color. Uh, actually, the 350 ml can of Coke uh, contains about 10 teaspoons of sugar. Well, I was going to say 10, but I thought it was a little bit much, so I thought between 5 and 8. No, it is 10. That that translates to about uh, 40 grams of sugar. Okay. That's that's quite a lot of sugar. That's a lot of sugar, eh? That's a lot of sugar. And, uh, of course, the diet beverages, Diet Coke, uh, do not have the sugar. They are sweetened with artificial sweeteners like uh, aspartame. But what about or... this new one that's out there with no, this no sugar? What what What's in that one? Well, there's many artificial sweeteners. The one that they're kicking around today is stevia, which is an extract of a plant. Okay. And it does have a sweet taste. But okay. there's uh, sucralose, there's cyclamate, there's aspartame, there's okay. asulfame, potassium. So there's a, a there are a number of artificial sweeteners. Are they that dangerous, are used. Dr. Joe? No, they're not. Uh, okay. All right. The uh, sugar in soft drinks is a bigger problem than uh, anything to do with artificial sweeteners. The problem with artificial sweeteners is that they haven't solved the problem that they were purported to solve, because they have not cut into the epidemic of obesity in North America. And I think okay. that that is because people who use artificial sweetened drinks and products will then reward themselves for being so good, and they'll have that piece of cake that they would not have had. Oh, uh, that's had not they, me. I'm not a sweet you know, eater. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but uh, so it, it is about ten uh, teaspoons of. Yeah, of, I was going to say I was going to say eight to ten, and then I thought, well, I'm yeah. being a little bit ridiculous, so I said five to eight. <laughs> What, so what? Okay, let me ask you another question. What country in the world do you think consumes per capita? the most sugar per day? Oh, God. America. I think it's an easy guess. United States? Yes. There you go. The, the Americans consume about 126 grams of sugar every oh, day. Oh, I'm sure they do. Yeah. That's sure a lot do. of sugar. And uh, that's uh, more than uh, any other country. Germany is next with 103. Canada, we're, we're somewhat less at 90. 
Okay. Now, interesting thing is that India, uh, per capita consumption of sugar is only five grams a day. That's the lowest uh, in, in the world. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, yes. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us here today. All right. Let me also tell you a little bit about the fat consumption and uh, what country consumes the most amount of fat. And uh, this time, it is not the United States. Uh, maybe surprisingly, Belgium. Belgians are really big lovers of fat. Uh, all of the Belgian pastry, of course, all of the Belgian chocolate, and they consume the most, about 95 grams of fat a day, which is quite a lot. Germany is second. Then comes the US. Canada is even less than the US at uh, 60 grams a day. And once again, India is at the bottom with only 10 grams of fat a day. Uh, but that, of course, uh, we're talking here per capita, and that's because the uh, India obviously has a very large uh, population, and uh, unfortunately, many in that population do not have enough food to eat. So that's why the sugar consumption and the fat consumption is so low, because food consumption is, uh, is so low. All right, well, here's something I guess that I'm forced to do because... Nobody had the answer to this. What is prenoil? I wanted to know. This is uh, what uh, aquatic birds like ducks and geese cover themselves with. Uh, and uh, they secrete this oil from uh, the gland and uh, glands on their skin and it covers their feathers. And that's why we have the expression like off water goes off a duck's back, right? Uh, as we know, water and fat do not mix. So this preen oil is a, obviously a fatty material. And because the feathers are covered with it, water slides right off. It doesn't exactly make them waterproof, but uh, the water doesn't uh, easily penetrate the, uh, the feathers of ducks and other uh, aquatic uh, birds. And the uh, gland that uh, produces the preen oil is called the uropygeal gland, and it's present in nearly all birds, uh, but uh, it is far more active in uh, waterfowl like the uh, like the ducks. So here's the you know interesting story about the preen oil. I think that it is interesting anyway, but that, as you know, I do have an affinity for ducks and anything that is duck related. And uh, some species will spend 25% of their waking hours preening. And when they're preening, what they're really doing is rubbing that preen oil over, over their feathers. And uh, it's not only about waterproofing, because the preening also rids the birds of parasites. And uh, that, of course, uh, keeps them uh, healthy. So anyway, it's the uropygeal gland that secretes this preen oil. And uh, this is what makes water slide off a duck's back. So I think you learned a lot here today about various things. We talked about fluoride, we talked about MSG, and we talked about the upcoming Trottier Public Science Symposium. So let me remind you once more, that comes your way tomorrow night and Tuesday night at 7 p.m. streamed live. And it's all about the science of life and death. Kick it off tomorrow at 7 with uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Offit. He'll talk about living with uh, COVID. And then we will have Kari Norvay, uh, 
mortician talk about her interesting business tuesday night uh, will be dr leslie fellows neurologist about the health of our brain and i will uh, finish it off talking about spiritualism and whether or not we can ever hope to talk to the dead for all the information go to www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. So hopefully we'll see you tomorrow night at seven online. But if not, I will be back with you here, same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>